<clears throat> I want to talk to you today about <clears throat> sacrifice and service. And the chicken exits are there and there and there. <clears throat> I'm going to talk to you about sacrifice and service. At this point in our study through the Gospel of Mark, you should all be aware of the key verse in the Gospel of Mark. Can anybody tell me what the key verse in the Gospel of Mark is? Mark 10, 45. That Jesus came. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Cheryl, you get a star. Uh, that is the key verse of the Gospel of Mark, and it's the key to our Lord's heart. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we're going to look today at the Lord's heart for each one of us, that we uh, ourselves would not come to be served, but to serve, and for us to lay our lives down in worship of him as well. You've all heard the saying, right, that there's, there's three types of people. There's the people that make things happen, there's the people that watch things happen, and the people that ask what happened, right? And, and we've got all three of those people in our text today. Uh, we've got the religious leaders, and these are the guys that always seem to be asking what happened, right? Jesus shows up, he heals a blind man, and the religious leaders are there, and they're like, what happened? You know, and Jesus finds a leper, he heals a leper, and the religious leaders are there, what happened? Or Jesus has, you know, someone who's demon-possessed and he casts out demons and there's no celebration in the religious leader's part. They're just Johnny on the spot. Hey, what happened? I want to know what's going on here. These guys don't have a clue. They don't want a clue. They see Jesus as a threat to their empire and so all they care about is killing Jesus. These are the guys uh, that are always asking what happened. We also have in our text... The disciples, these are the guys, God bless them, that are typically watching things happen. We always see them watching things, not really getting it, but they're always there watching it. If they were Hollywood actors, uh, they would be typecast in this role. We need somebody sitting around watching. Get the disciples. These are the guys, right? They're always watching things happen. Jesus is telling these guys that he's going to the cross for months now. Guys, I'm going to the cross. Guys, I'm going to the cross. And they just can't get it. They're not getting it. They don't see it. They watch. They see everything unfold. But God bless them. They're not the sharpest knives in the drawer. And, and I love this because, you know, as it's been said, these are the apostles, right? These are the A-team. These are the guys God chose. Jesus didn't choose the B-apostles. He, uh, he chose them as the apostles, you know? And I see these guys being slow. And I see them kind of sitting around watching things and not getting it. And I'm encouraged because how many times do I sit around and watch things and not get it as a Christian and I can totally identify with these guys. They're sitting around going, what? what, what what's going on there? And, and so I, I just love that, you know, our, our Lord's heart uh, is to pick guys like this because I'm a guy like this. So, so that's neat. But thirdly, we've, we've got the hero of our story today, an unnamed woman uh, who makes things happen. And she's the gal, uh, the, the, the type of person that all of us want to be as Christians. We see this woman, uh, and, and there, spiritually speaking, she's making stuff happen. She's a gal who, Jesus said, simply did what she could. Uh, she's a gal who, Jesus said, chose the better part. Uh, and uh, we see her, she's in a place where she can understand Jesus. She hears things that he's saying that nobody else is hearing. She's connecting the dots like nobody else is connecting the dots. Uh, she's doing these things and exercising her faith, even in the 
face of personal ridicule and, and people, you know, thinking evil of her and mocking her. Uh, and, and yet she is able to, to, to just make things happen spiritually, to hear what God's saying, to connect the dots, to follow after him. I want to be like her. Uh, and I hope you do too, because that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to say, what is it that enabled her to hear what Jesus was saying? What was it that enabled her to connect the dots? What was it that enabled her to be that kind of a Christian? And how can I be that kind of a Christian? How can, how can I be a servant to the Lord and actually hear what he says? Uh, we're going to see in, uh, in Mark chapter 14. We pick it up, Mark 14, beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. Verse 2, but they said, not during the feast, let there be an uproar of the people. Now, the Jews had three different feasts. We'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do, I don't want to to lose sight of this. Uh, This is just a freebie. It's not in my notes. It's just a little something extra for you. But, but the, you note in verse 2 that the, the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus, but they said, we don't want to do it during the feast because there will be an uproar of the people. There's almost 2 million people in, in Jerusalem. Jesus is a, a hero to, to many of these people. And so the priests didn't want to put him to death because they thought that the people were going to turn against them. So they wanted to do it secretly. They thought, well, the festival is not the best place to do it. This feast is not the best place to do it. Problem was that the feast that's coming up is the Feast of Passover. And Passover is a very symbolic feast. There were three feasts that the, uh, that the Jewish people uh, kept primarily, which required uh, the adult males by law to present themselves before the Lord. Passover was one of those feasts. And the, the Feast of Passover was, of course, you know, the memorial of God's delivering the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. Uh, God telling Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh hardening his heart, not letting the people go. And, and so finally, God sends these, these series of plagues to change Pharaoh, to get him to relent, let the people go. And the final plague is, he sends the angel of death to kill the firstborn of, 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 uh, of all the families. But he tells the, the Jews, now listen... If you sacrifice a lamb and you take the blood of that lamb and you stick it on the doorpost of the house, that angel of death will pass over your house. And so uh, here, uh, this is a, a feast that, that they celebrated. And uh, of course, along with that feast, they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread, another feast which basically symbolized the haste with which they left Egypt. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was they would eat the bread without yeast in it, and yeast being symbolic in Scripture of sin and so on. Uh, but they would also eat this in, or eat the bread with unleavened bread, have the the feast of unleavened bread to symbolize the haste with which they left Egypt. In other words, there wasn't time enough to, when making their dough to put yeast in it and wait for the dough to rise. They would just have to to cook it without yeast in it. And that, again, symbolic. And they would would celebrate these, these feasts together. Well, the feast was highly symbolic and was meant to point to Jesus Christ. By the way, just a quick Rule note, if you're going to study scripture, all scripture points to Christ. When you're studying prophecy, when you're studying the Old Testament, whatever you're looking at, it's all there to point you to Christ. And so uh, here, the, the Feast of Passover was all meant to point to Jesus Christ. And so uh, here the Jewish leaders saying, hey, we don't want to kill Jesus at the time of Passover. Well, God's like, 
well, that's going to ruin my type here because the Passover is all about the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, my son. And, and so, you know, you see it as the angel of death passing over your house, but truly it was all there to point to Jesus Christ who's going to himself as the Lamb of God be slain on the Passover just, just as, you know, the, the, the feast dictates. So even though these religious leaders said, we don't want to kill him on that day, they ended up killing him on that day. Now, we're going to read about it at the end of our text today, but, but the, uh, the, the, the quick version, and of course you know it, is that Judas decided to rat Jesus out, and the religious leaders got an offer they couldn't refuse. They wanted to kill Jesus in private. They thought, well, we'll wait till the, the, fe- the feast passes over, or no pun intended, <laughs> until, until the feast goes by, and then we can do it uh, after the fact. And um, Kylo, that one's for you. And, um, and yet, <clears throat> they... Um, they get an offer they can't refuse. So they're like, well, yeah, we'll do it. And, G- and the father's like, there, the typology is, is in place. So the Feast of Fa- Passover was one of these symbolic feasts. A couple of other feasts that they, that they celebrated. Secondly, the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost came 50 days after the Passover on the Jewish calendar, and that's how it received its name. Uh, Pente means, stands for 50. Uh, Pentecost is the, is the feast that they would celebrate. And the whole purpose of the feast, it was also called, by the way, the Feast of First Fruits. And it was when the... Israelites would harvest their fields. They would take a corner of their field and they would take the first part of that harvest. They would wrap the sheaves of wheat into bundles and they would offer that to the Lord as a wave offering to the Lord. This was the second of the three feasts that the three major feasts that they celebrated. And this also was highly symbolic. The whole idea of this was that it was to symbolize the first fruits of the church. And so what we read, as we've just spent many months studying through the book of Acts, is that on the day of Pentecost, the Lord poured his Holy Spirit out upon his disciples, and they went out, uh, you know, just proclaiming the goodness of God uh, by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and we read that 2,000 people were added to the church on that day. Now, it's been 2,000 years since then, and day by day, the Lord adds to the church such as should be saved, but Pentecost now serves as this example, this spiritual example of offering the first fruits to God. It's, it's been fulfilled in our church, in our church age, that, that God gave birth to the church, 2,000 were saved, 2,000 are continuing to be saved. Again, this highly symbolic thing. Interestingly, the third Jewish feast hasn't really found its fulfillment in the New Testament yet. The third Jewish feast was the Feast of Tabernacles, also referred to as the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Tabernacles is, uh, to this day, the, the Jews celebrate it as a memorial feast in which they celebrate God's miraculous preservation uh, of them in the wilderness through 40 years of wilderness wandering and ultimately bringing them into the promised land. Uh, again, as I said, it hasn't found its New Testament fulfillment yet, um, but uh, most uh, theologians believe that uh, Jesus will likely return to set up his millennial kingdom uh, to, that coincides with the Feast of Tabernacles. It's my personal belief that the Lord will rapture the church and ultimately return to set up uh, his millennial kingdom uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles. You can disagree with me and we can still love Jesus together. It's no big deal. That's just my personal opinion. All right, so at this point, we're reading in our text 
that, you know, it's, they're gathering together. It says after two days, it was the Passover. It's just a, a way of saying that t- they're two days away from the Passover. So, so that's what's going on here. And all of these Jewish males required to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. At this point, there's like two to three million people in, crowding into Jerusalem to celebrate uh, the Passover. And this Passover, there to point uh, to to Christ, the the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. We know that Jesus is going to the cross, and he's been telling his disciples this for months. Guys, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to give my life uh, to the Lord, and they they aren't getting it. We read all the way back in in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus is beginning to tell them this, he tells them three different times, guys, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to, and it's just three different times that it's recorded in Mark's gospel that he tells them that he's going to the cross. He's all the while trying to, to prepare them for it, and they're not getting it, and not only aren't they getting it, but we read in Mark chapter 9 that right on the heels of Jesus telling them, I'm going to go you know, be, suffer and die, and I'm going to be betrayed, and, and so on, and, and then all on the heels of him saying that, almost, you know, as, after it's right just come out of his mouth, what are his disciples doing? They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. You know, Jesus is talking about how he's come to give his life, and they're talking about how they're going to, like, build up their own empires and stuff. They totally got the wrong mindset. Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? They're like, nothing. You know, they don't want to tell him what they were talking about. You know, they're all embarrassed, but that's where their heart was. Uh, again, in, in John chapter 10, Jesus right on the heels of telling them, I'm going to go, I'm going to give my life. Then, you know, uh, James and John have the audacity to come up to him and, and say, hey, we want, we want the number two position uh, in, when you come into your kingdom. And he's like, well, what? You know, well, you know, when you come into your kingdom, we want, you know, we want positions, uh, Lord. We want, we want to have that, that, that power and that position right there with you. And it's interesting how Jesus answered him. He didn't rebuke him for wanting to be great, which is amazing. Uh, he says, oh, it, you guys want to be great? Great. Okay, let me just tell you. The way up is down. And this is where he, he says that key verse in, in Mark ten forty five: For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's interesting when he quotes that, that, that verse, the, the service, uh, the, the word servant in the text literally means deacon, uh, and it, it, it means one who hastens after another. You see, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in all the law? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it. You must love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two commandments hinge all the law and the prophets. And the whole idea here is we're talking about service and the, the whole picture of who Christ is, who he came to be, what the heart of God is for you and me, is that we would have servants' hearts, which means that we hasten after God and it also means that we hasten after one another. Now, when we hasten after one another, it doesn't mean that, you know, I hitch my wagon to you and that I'm looking to you to to be, you know, the person that's going to lead me or whatever. No, what it means, though, is that I'm going to consider others better than myself. That's what we're exhorted to do in the New Testament. Consider others better than yourself. Hasten to consider one another. Hasten to lay your lives down for one another. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this. Then he lay his life down. For his friends, he says, you're my friends if you do what I command. What did he command? Be a servant as I am a servant. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we read in verse 3, being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he, that is Jesus, sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard, and then she broke the flask and she poured it on his head. Now there's a lot to see here. First of all, the thing that stands out to me is the fraternity that they're in. They're in the house of Simon the leper. And, and you can't read the Bible too long to where you discover that being a leper in this day wasn't a good thing. You were a social outcast. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with you. It was a contagious disease. Uh, and in fact, the, the, it, was, it was required of somebody, if they were unfortunate enough to contract leprosy, that for the rest of their life they couldn't, they couldn't have contact with anybody. Couldn't have physical contact with anybody. And you would, walking down the street, you would have to call out, unclean, unclean, so that everybody, you know, mom walking with her kids, grab them and run away from you. Can you imagine living your life that way? And here, Simon the leper, we read that this is where Jesus is gathering for supper. He's sitting at his table. To have a meal with this man. Uh, just an amazing thing. You know, the, if, if lepers didn't stay lepers long when they hung out with Jesus. Because he healed them, you know. And, and something else we see here. We don't learn it in this text. But we learn in, in John's gospel that this woman, the hero of our story. Jesus is the hero of our story. But this, this example, this role model for us in this woman. It's Mary. Uh, and John tells us that. John says that it's Mary, uh, it's the sister uh, of Lazarus, Mary, the sister of Martha, that Mary and Martha, remember that situation? And so here they are, they're gathering together at Simon the leper's house, a guy that's been healed, no doubt, by the Lord. Uh, We see Mary there, so no doubt you know that Martha's there and you know that Lazarus is there. And I think about this fraternity here. Here you've got a guy, a leper that was healed. You've got Lazarus, whose claim to fame is that God raised him from the dead. Uh, you've got Martha, a gal who we'll look at in a minute. We'll turn, we'll turn there. But there's a famous section of scripture where Mary and Martha are there. Jesus has come over to their house. And Mary's sitting at the Lord's feet, just taking every word in. And what's Martha doing? Well, she's busy serving, and she comes complaining to the Lord about her sister. You know, oh, I'm serving, and she's sitting here doing nothing. And, and basically, the, the, the Lord ends up telling her, she's chosen the better part, and you haven't, kind of thing. And so here we read in verse 3 that they've gathered together in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, and I just do the math and figure out everybody that's there, and it's the, it's the coolest picture of the church, uh, one of the coolest pictures I've ever seen. We've got Simon the leper miraculously healed. You've got Lazarus who's been healed by the Lord. You've got uh, Martha who's disposition. I mean, there's no account of Martha complaining here. You know, she's a changed person. And I think about that in, in light of us. Here we gather together on a Sunday morning. I remember the guy that I used to be before Christ. Do you remember the person that you used to be before Jesus got a hold of your life? Do you remember your testimony? you remember some of the stuff you would, you remember some of the Sunday mornings that you would wake up? I saw on Facebook, somebody had a posting on there. I just remembered why I never drink. Uh, and I'm, and it's an interesting thing about Facebook because you have all these people who are friends of friends of friends and, and we kind of get isolated in our Christian bubble and, and there's nobody, you know, that is in my circle of friends that, that is claiming this, but here we got this person who obviously isn't, isn't, you know, walking with the Lord these days. I don't know, but, but they're posted on their Facebook. I just remembered why I didn't drink. 
Now, I can remember the days when I was drinking. I can remember the days before Jesus Christ had a hold of my life. I remember all the horrible, wretched, awful things that I used to do and the horrible, wretched, awful man that I was and indeed still am as we prayed. The Lord knows our hearts. It's deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? Well, God can. We're still wicked people, but we're wicked people saved by a miraculous God. And so here we've got this, this leper cleansed. We've got this man who was dead, healed. We've got this woman who had an anger issue and, and re- resentment with her sister. No mention of that anymore. Here they are. They're all fellowshipping together. Just a beautiful picture of the church, what we're supposed to be. People just created in the image of God. They're all together there. And now Mary shows up. And Mary, she's nothing. Mary's steadfast. Because she shows up. She has this alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Now, what is that? Well, in this day and age, they didn't have the local savings and loan. They didn't have the stock market that you could put your investments in or whatever. Um, and, uh, and so what people would do, among other things, is they would take their money and they would invest in costly, fragrant oils. And this that's described for us here in these verses is some of the most expensive, if not the most expensive, uh, anointing oil that you could invest in. Uh, early in the first century, uh, a guy by the name of Pliny, the elder, uh, wrote about this. And, and he said that, quote, the best ointment is preserved in alabaster. And he went on to say that, uh, he, that he believes the perfume and its identification as nard suggests that it was a family heirloom passed on from one generation to another, from mother to daughter. Uh, In other words, what we had here was something that somebody had invested a lot of money in. And as we read in our text, it was worth over 300 denarii, which just to, to shorthand for you, that's about a year's wages. So you've got something that was an investment that was worth a year's salary. How much do you make in a year? That's what this thing cost. The average is the average person. Uh, I think I think I read somewhere the average income for the for Temecula is like sixty five thousand dollars. So you think okay, it's you know Temecula dollars is sixty five grand, uh, and so here it is a year's wages. Not only that, it was an heirloom handed down from mother to daughter, which means that this was most likely Mary's dowry. Now, in this day and age, for a woman, you had a dowry, which was something of value, so that when a guy came along, it's not exactly the most romantic thing in the world, but it's it's how the world went around in this day and age. If you ladies had a hope of getting married, you had to have a dowry. And the guy who would look at you would say, hey, she's she's good looking, and she's got a year's salary that, uh, that I get when I marry her. Okay. Yeah, I'm marrying you. Like I said, not the most romantic thing in the world, but it's, it's what worked at the time. <coughs> yeah. And so what Mary is doing here is she's worshiping her Lord, not only putting her money where her mouth is. Guys, she's putting all of her hopes. She's putting all of her dreams, everything. She's pouring out upon the Lord. Just an amazingly beautiful picture. And, you know, the custom was when you anointed somebody that, you know, it says she broke it. In some text, if you've got like the, the King James, it says she broke it over his head. It just kind of doesn't give you the right. You think, you know, what, was she mad at Jesus? You know, here, you know. And it wasn't like that. These alabaster jars had this skinny neck and they would break the neck. 
and then you would you know get a little drop out of it. It's not unlike a perfume bottle uh, today. And, and so they would. It was typical. Somebody would come over. You would anoint them with one or two drops. This says no. She didn't do that. She broke this thing. She poured everything out on the Lord. Just an amazing thing. The real story isn't just her sacrifice. But really when we take a walk with this, what we want to know is what got her to the place where she could make such a sacrifice. My wife and I were talking about this. She's like, could you give something that was the equivalent of a year's salary? Could you give that to the Lord? Like, no, that's that's a tough question. I mean, I would like to say yes, I could, but, but I mean, think about it. And what was it about Mary that got her to the place where she gave no thought to it whatsoever, that she would be able to do this? Well, turn to Luke chapter 10. Just to the right there. Next book over, Luke chapter 10. We're going to verse 38. It says in Luke 10, 38, telling us a little story about Mary and Martha. Now it happened as they went that he, that is Jesus, entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Just, let's just let that sink in for a minute. She just sat at his feet. She heard his word. Verse 40, But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and he said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed and Mary has chosen the good part. Can you take note of that? She had a choice. She had a choice here. You say, well, wait a minute, Pastor Ted. You know, isn't the message about serving? And and this story kind of makes it seem like Martha did the wrong thing by serving. No, Martha didn't do the wrong thing by serving, but Martha's life was out of balance. See, the Bible says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you as well. And Martha had gotten her life completely out of balance. She had gotten completely off track. And so here she had chosen the better thing this Mary had. And, and Jesus said, one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Guys, what I'm telling you is that here Mary, by spending time with the Lord, by sitting at Jesus' feet, by spending time with him, she was in such a place that she could hear what he would say. And because Mary spent time at the Lord's feet and listened to what he said, she was in the place now, back in our text, back in Mark chapter 14, where as Jesus is there and in this place, Mary is looking around and she's saying, you know what? The religious leaders, they won't listen to Jesus. They don't want to listen to Jesus. They don't, they don't have a clue. Uh, they're asking what happened. The, the, the apostles, they, you know, they're there and they're watching things, but they're not getting it. Jesus is saying that he's going to die. And, and what? Nobody's... Preparing his body for, for burial. And that's what Jesus goes on to say. That, sh- that she prepared his body. He says she's done what she should. She came beforehand to anoint my body for burial in verse 8. And Mary, having spent that time with the Lord, she knew that this is where God was going. And so her in, in this place of worship, she says, 
He's going to sacrifice for me. I'm going to sacrifice for him. I want to anoint him. But, verse 4, there were some who were indignant among themselves. And they said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Now, John tells us not only that it was Mary uh, who this story was about, this woman in our story, this hero, but he also tells us that it was Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would betray Jesus. He was the one who was the ringleader of this group. It was Judas who figured out the value of the perfume. It was Judas who suggested that the perfume could have rather been sold and the proceeds given to to the poor. And it was Judas who worked the room and gathered together a a posse of people to attack this poor woman who did such a beautiful thing for the Lord. And in John chapter 12, as John retells this story, he adds that Judas did all these things because not because he cared about the poor, but because because he used to steal from the money box. Let me read it for you. John twelve six says, This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he, had the, and, he, and he held the money box, and he used to take what was put in the money box. This is why Judas said it, according to the Apostle John in John twelve six. Now, I want you to notice Judas' main complaint here at the end of verse 4. He says, Why was this... Wasted. Do you see that word wasted? Keep that in mind and turn to John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, we're going to look at verse 12. Actually, you know what? I'm going to pick it up in context. I'll pick it up in verse 6. Here we are in John chapter 17. This is, this is basically two days from now. Okay, Two days ahead from where we're at in Mark chapter 14. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. You know that he's about to be seized by the people that Judas betrays him to. They're about to take him in. He's he's going to be beaten and scourged and ultimately crucified. And he's there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He brought Peter, James, and John with him. He said, watch and pray. And Jesus himself went off to pray. And so here in, in John chapter 17, we get to hear what Jesus was praying. I'll pick it up in verse 6. He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all the things which you have given me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you have given to me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 9, Jesus says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Take note of that. Jesus says, I am glorified in them. Do you know what that means? God is glorified in your life when you take in his word, when you receive him for who he is, when his word abides in your heart and you live it out, God is glorified in your life. That's exactly what he's praying here. Verse 11, and he says, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one 
as we are one. That high priestly prayer of the Lord saying, look, <coughs> God, keep them unified. The enemy's going to come in. He's going to attack the church. He's going to attack them. Lord, would you keep them unified? The Lord would say to us, all, say to his disciples, all men will know you're my disciples by the love that you have one for another. The Lord wanting our heart to be connected and, and for us to be unified with one another so that we could continue. We could take this baton that he's given to us, the word of God, and we could believe it and manifest it and live it out in our lives and that, the, that we could continue this, this race that he has started. It's the way God's designed it. Verse 12, he says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those who you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. If you take notes, you'll want to do this. Circle son of perdition. Next by it, you might want to write this word because this is what this word means. You probably know where I'm going. Wasted. You see, Judas looked at this act of worship, this thing that Mary did with this very costly spikenard, this very costly oil, as she broke it and poured the whole thing out on Jesus. All of her hopes, all of her dreams, all of her money, she poured into Jesus, and Judas looked at that and he said, what a waste of money. Jesus looked at Judas and in his prayer two days later, and he said, what a waste of life. Judas is all worried about how, man, she wasted this money. And Jesus is like, you wasted your life. And I have a question for you today. Are you wasting your life? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And I wonder today, if maybe Jesus might say, man, what a wasted life. God, let that not be said of us. And so, and I, you know, I want you to notice something. Um, back in, in Mark, and it's really sad. As a pastor, I see this all the time. I want you to take note of what Judas does. Because really, he's stirring up other people. Now, we, we kind of kind of connect the dots here to be able to do this, but we take what John said in his gospel, that it was Judas who was the ringleader, that it was Judas who was saying these things. We, we read now in verse 14 what's happening. And the account in verse 14 says, there were some, plural, who were indignant among themselves, again, plural, and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? Who said that? Judas. But now... There's lots of people saying it. Can you connect the dots and see what happened? Can you believe what she did? you believe that waste? Holy moly, she wasted all that stuff. Can you believe we could have done this? And notice how he does it. He spiritualizes it. The worst kind of thing. This guy has an agenda, and yet he spiritualized. Oh, we could have sold that and gave everything to the poor. He wanted it for his pocket. He wanted to steal it for himself. And I, and I notice as a pastor, 17 years, as I look through and I see little factions in the church where people all of a sudden, they all get together and they all start whispering, they all start murmuring and, and everything's going on. Inevitably, you can track it down to a ringleader or a group of ringleaders and they have an agenda. And it's power and it's position and it, or it's paycheck. One of those things, man, is their motivating factor and they're going to suck in as many people as they can so they get this, this group together. And that's exactly what we see here. 
And it says that they criticized her sharply. That word criticize means to murmur against. But Jesus said in verse 6, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? The word trouble is very telling. It means to strike, to beat, or to cut. And so what these people were doing, having been influenced by Judas, who has an agenda, now all together, they're knocking this person down. They're striking her. They're beating her. They're cutting her down. And Jesus reacts very violently to it. He says, lay off her. You leave her alone. He says, verse 7, For you have the poor with you always, and whatever you wish, may, you may do uh, them good, but me you do not have always. He says, she has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. And he could have added, none of you knuckleheads did that. I've been telling you for months that I'm going. He says, she's the only one that heard. She's the only one that got it. And she did this, she did this beautiful thing of not only sacrificing this great wealth, but her whole life, her whole hopes and dreams poured out on me. And you have the audacity to sit there and to, to murmur against her and to complain and to malign her character. Lay off her. Back off, you guys. She's the only one that did this. He says in verse 9, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And isn't that true? Here we are today. Who are we talking about? We're talking about what Mary did 2,000 years ago and how beautiful it is. And I'm not, if for time's sake, I'm not going to have you turn there, but if, if you are a note taker, you might want to write this down. Malachi 3, 16 through 18. Malachi 3, 16 through 18. It's just one book to the left of the Gospel of Matthew. It's the last, last book in the, New, in the Old Testament. But it tells us there that the Lord keeps a book of remembrance. It's in heaven. And for you and me, whenever we do those things that are these beautiful acts of worship to the Lord, he writes them down. He's got this book of remembrance. And who's it for? It's for him. I was sitting with my family last night and it was one of those rare moments where I had most of my family there. Um... And uh, I got my daughters and, and their husbands and we're sitting, the fire's going and, you know, by the Christmas tree and we've been wrapping Christmas presents. It's one of those Hallmark moments, you know. And, and we're looking through pictures of, of uh, you know, years gone by and I got pictures of, of my babies, you know. And I look down, I got this one picture of Megan, my oldest, and she's just this little itty bitty. My kids spent their lives climbing everything. And so she's up on a table with a blanket over her head standing. She's this little, little itty bitty thing. And I look at this picture and I look up and there she is and she's got my grandbaby in her belly. She's due in, at the end of February. And, I, and it just was, life could not be more perfect. And I thought, and, and, and I just get the same picture here, no pun intended. But the Lord keeps this book of remembrance. He wants to remember these beautiful things. And the beautiful things are the things that you and I do by faith when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so many of us guys, we spend our lives consumed with things that are just a waste. We waste our time, we waste our money, we waste our lives. All burdened about these things that are going to burn and that don't matter. And God says, she has done a beautiful thing. And I want to remember this forever. Well, I want you to notice one final thing and we'll close with this. Can you, can you guys look at, at verses 10 and 11? It's really telling. 
tells us there, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And so he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Man, there's a lot to see there. They wanted to kill him after the feast of Passover. Judas offers him up a better opportunity. Says, I'll betray him to you now. I personally think that Judas came to the same realization that Mary came to. Mary was like, he's going to the cross. He's going to die. And she, and she took this, the, the act of worship. She said, all of my hopes, all of my dreams, all of my everything is in you, Lord Jesus. And I have the hope of eternal life. You remember when he raised her brother from the dead? What was the testimony that was given? Lord, her sister said it. Lord, I know that you can raise him again. Even now, you can raise him again. And Mary exercised the same faith when she said to the Lord, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't be dead. I trust in you. I know that I can trust in you. And so Mary here, she's poured everything into the Lord. Lord, I can trust you with my everything. And, And Judas comes to the realization Where, you know, just like Mary, oh, hey, I see that you're dying, you're going to the cross, but I know you'll be raised again, and I know I'll be raised again, and so I can pour out everything on you. Judas says, wow, you are going to the cross, you are going to be betrayed, and I am not going to get what I wanted. See, because Judas was following Jesus for all of the wrong reasons. Judas was following after Jesus because he thought Jesus was going to set up his kingdom and that Judas was going to be able to rule with him. Judas was going to have power. He was going to have position. He was going to have paycheck. And now all of a sudden the light comes on for Judas and he has a whole altogether different reaction than Mary has because Mary was worshiping Christ, her Savior and her Lord and had the hope of eternal life. Judas was worshiping what Jesus could give him. Jesus was an ends to a means and the, or a means to an ends and the end was him. And he said, you know what? You're going to die. I'm out. You are no longer the winning horse that I'm going to bet my money on. And so he goes to these guys and he says, you give me money, I'll betray him. They say, yeah, we'll give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Can you see the difference? What did Jesus say in verse 8? He said, she has done what she could. And a lot of times we hear that and we think, you know, I can only do what I can do. And we think about it in the most simplest terms. Can I, can I just point out to you what Mary could do was a lot? What was it that Mary could do? Well, she could break open this flask worth a great amount of money. And she could pour out all of her hopes and dreams upon Jesus. She could actually do a lot. You see, for Mary, it was worshiping the Lord at great personal cost and great personal sacrifice. And Judas, he sought how he might conveniently betray him. And I ask you the question as we close, what kind of a Christian are you? Is Jesus for you a means to an end? And is your relationship with him defined as what you can conveniently do? Or is Jesus for you your everything? And at great personal cost, are you going to worship him? Are you going to pour out everything upon him? I pray that you'd be like Mary. Let's pray. Father.